You're listening to the World Radio Day podcast series on SOAS Radio. We're here today for the Post World Radio Day interview at SOAS, and we're welcoming Omar Salah. Omar Salah is a PhD student at SOAS and a member of Football Beyond Borders. Um, hello, Omar, and thank you for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. So um, you are uh, studying here at SOAS as a PhD yep. student, um, and your research focuses on um, sports, more specifically football, um, Muslim communities, and the question of identity. That's correct, yeah. Um, could you let us a little bit more about uh, your research and what you do at SOAS, please? Yeah, sure. So the, the PhD program is looking at... Um, Integration of Muslims in Britain, so it's part of the Nahud scholarship, and um, um, I'm uh, focusing on, as you've mentioned, uh, particularly on sports and uh, the role of Muslim football players in the Premier League, and how they act as ambassadors of their faith, and how do they, through their actions and um, through the space of sports, do they uh, facilitate integration and the question of integration. Um, how is it addressed within that uh, arena, um, particularly looking at the history of um, football in Britain and also the role uh, players uh, play uh, in um, debating that question about race, identity, sense of belonging. So my research is particularly focusing on the role of or the history of British Muslims and also the question of integration and the sort of intersection between that identity uh, and citizenship uh, and sports. So how does that play a role? So ultimately, the uh, the role of football players in the Premier League, um, celebrating their faith, as well as celebrating something which is very British, the, the Premier League, and uh, where is the, the conversation being had around integration and citizenship. Okay. Thank you. Um, so, in your opinion, does the British and European sport, do they take the Muslim heritage um, in consideration in general um, into account? So, I think um, we probably would need to break it down in terms of uh, when we say British and European sport. Um, sport in itself is not confined to a particular uh, country or a particular continent, rather sport has been, um, you know, practiced on this planet for centuries, and um, we often f- come across the argument that football was born or made in Britain or China. Um, obviously, depending on which vantage point or which history you decide to follow, then we could be having a debate here right now talking about. Was is football British or is football Chinese? <laughs> um, but um, certainly, if we were to look at you know t- t- you know particular my research looking at um, uh, the Premier League, which is the um, you know regarded as one of the most um, uh, f- widely followed uh, leagues in, on the planet, albeit that probably. Down to the, the the transfer market and the money the money power and the media broadcasting rights as well. Um, but if we were to look at, for example, the Football Association and the Premier League and how they have uh, accommodated for Muslim players, we see have seen some instances where 
uh, for instance, um, the introduction of prayer rooms at stadiums, um, the introduction of uh, halal-friendly meals and canteens um, up and down the country uh, at different clubs. Um, and we also have um, something which was quite uh, pivotal, which is a, a long, over 100, over 100 year tradition where the Man of the Match Award was uh, typically presented with a, sh a bottle of champagne. Um, but um, that slowly changed to uh, a trophy or a mini trophy, a Man of the Match uh, Award. Um, and I think that uh, came about, again, some instances where you had some football players and also non-Muslim players who did not drink champagne, um, uh, preferred uh, actually a trophy. Um, so that happened with a couple of instances on on live television on Sky, where some players would just refuse the the bottle, um, and then in some instances you had players like Yaya Toure who refused the bottle and actually emphasised that he is Muslim and therefore he does not drink. Um, so this is you know this is one sort of of the many different accommodated uh, actions taken by the the FA and the Premier League. So. I think in terms from a institutional perspective, in terms of like the, the structural um, accommodation, that's definitely, we've seen improvements on that front. But those, those accommodations and those structural changes have come as a result of the players uh, who are obviously seen as assets um, by the league and obviously by the club. So it only makes sense that you create an environment and a habitat which is welcoming and um, uh, comfortable for for these players to be mindful of something which they are very uh, close to, which is their faith and their practice of their faith. So, do you think it's easier for um, Premier League players, football players, to come across these issues and make them uh, public? Because Premier League is quite, you know, a famous event and followed by um, a lot of people, as you said before. I think again, there's. Um, so there's two things there. One is obviously the, the sport industry and the, um, the role uh, leagues and obviously media broadcasters play. Um, I think that's, uh, it's very, it would be unfair to say that the Premier League is almost like a penicillin for sports in societies. Um, so we have to bear in mind that sport in society, i.e. grassroots sports or activities that uh, happen on a local level are very much different to the habitat and environment in mega sporting industries like the Premier League. Um, so, because what we're dealing with on a local level is obviously um, identity politics, you know? We're dealing with people who are actually very much vested in their daily experience of being themselves, you know, as a citizen of this country. Um, whereas for football players in the Premier League, for instance, they are almost seeing what well, they are, um, employees, um, uh, and they are paid to do their job. And um, it's almost like for me to excel in the, in the work that I do, I will need um, these different criterions. Um, I should, you know, I, I eat halal meat only, therefore, in order for me to excel in my performance, uh, from a science-based approach, then doctors and club doctors would promote, you know, um, halal meat in the canteen in order that I don't miss out on, you know, the, the vital nutrients and vitamins and in, for, for instance, chicken or, or lamb or beef, etc., etc. So 
it's almost because it's very focused on a performance level uh, from mega sporting industries. It's less focused on identity politics, whereas sport in society, it is very much part and parcel of how we live and how we are perceived and also represented. So, for instance, where I do think there is an intersection between the Premier League and, let's say, sport in society is where you have people like, for instance, Mohamed Salah, who... Um, after every goal he scores, he prostrates. Um, he is someone who is outspokenly, you know, talked about his um, uh, close affinity to his, the Islamic faith. You've had Liverpool fans singing the the, the famous song about uh, him seeing him in a mosque, and uh, they'll, they'll convert to Islam if he can, scores more goals. I think that um, it transcends down to sort of the local level. Uh, sport, sporting activities because as fans and as also as citizens of the country we have that affinity we have that relationship we are able to um, have that message sort of um, filter down to us so I do think that instance you have people who are able to um, bring about some form of influence when it comes to identity politics faith and sport more so if you have people like Ibtihaj Mohammed, who is the first Muslim uh, female fencer and was the first Muslim hijabi to lead the US Olympic team in the last Olympics. And I think that, again, what does that mean to local local sporting uh, activities is it transcends down the identity of or the, the meaning or the definition of the hijab and sport that actually it is possible, right? And it sort of takes away that... Um, um, sort of complex, if you will, from people who actually ha harbor racist views, for instance, and actually there is a change there of influence and perception. So I do think the agency that these players have are pivotal because they can play a role in actually um, ridding or fueling, rather, um, depending on what their motives are, uh, local sort of... Uh, um, uh, politics and, and identity questions when it comes to sport. Um, however, I do take that with a pinch of salt because I do believe that these players are ultimately there to do their job and um, are paid to do their job. And they are not in somehow um, given preferential treatment because they are of a particular faith. Rather, it is more about ensuring they have the right habitat to work in to ensure they have an enhanced performance uh, for their team. So as much as all the the great stories we hear about prayer rooms and in stadiums and more and and uh, in different training uh, complexes and facilities and obviously the introdu introduction of halal meats etc all of these are are great um to talk about but ultimately if we had players who were not performing, then that wouldn't be the, the topic of the discussion. It would more be about the players not performing. So that's where the uh, the important distinguished uh, distinction rather should be should be made. Thank you. It makes me um, going back to women actually, um, because as you say, you know, um, uh, you can have this type of influence if you're a player already and if you know uh, included in the the fields. Yeah. <laughs> and that makes me think about. Um, how some women wearing hijab have not been accepted on the field in basketball, especially uh, with 
the FIBA that still uh, put a ban on wearing the veil um, on the field. And uh, then you have these uh, advertising from Nike, uh, big brands, mm. you know, advertising pro-hijab uh, campaign, you know, the performers um, uh, hijab. Where do you see this intersection, you know, um, between sports, identity, politics and business as well? And what extent do you think that plays into achieving here, you know, um, Muslim uh, women players' causes? What would be very interesting is to look at the the role of these major corporations, for instance, who are involved in the sporting industry, um, how they have changed their their way and they're particularly looking at their marketing um, appeal to particular uh, sort of uh, groups in society. So if we look at, let's say, for instance, Muslim women who wear the hijab and um, the role or the, 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 the tactic being employed by these different major, major corporations um, almost to sort of say that we empower, we are empowering you because now our label um, is now on your piece of clothing. And I think that's quite problematic because women, or particularly Muslim women who, did, who do wear the hijab, are empowered anyway. So this, the starting point isn't they are now more empowered because X brand now has its logo on the hijab. Um, and I think that's very, it's a very slippery slope because we can easily fall into the trap of believing that that brand does believe in the empowerment of Muslim women who wear the hijab. And I think ultimately what that is really, if we wanted to boil it down and look at, let's say, the neo, um, you know, liberal economic policies of, of the way the world is today, particularly within the uh, commercial and corporate world, um, it is about profit. It is about, you know, identifying merging markets, identifying new possibilities. And, you know, I remember a discussion having with some uh, uh, Muslim women who wear the hijab that they've been wearing this hijab and playing sports for many decades. Just it happens to be that X brand has now put its logo on the hijab. Suddenly it's become now acknowledged. Um, but what about the previous years that uh, Muslim women have been wearing the hijab and also playing sports? So they've been breaking down barriers before X brand has come in and you know pushed a massive marketing uh, appeal towards um, towards that area. So for me, it's um, just making sure that uh, the discussion around empowerment and identity politics is not conflated with the motives behind such corporations, because ultimately the, what they're after is profit. And if it means that they paint themselves in a much more um, welcoming, receptive uh, look on BAME uh, communities, then it will do that. So it's almost a win-win for them to, to, to get themselves involved in such a situation. But then if we go back to the idea of Muslim women and hijab and their struggle in playing basketball with the hijab or playing other sports with the hijab, then where were the corporations and where were the the sporting uh, uh, labels in that discussion? Do you see what I mean? So I think uh, ultimately we we don't need to feel that we are our, our value or our worth rests with uh, such uh, major uh, corporations. Having said that, you also have to be mindful that the appeal and the influence such 
corporations have does play a massive role in the psyche of a young Muslim girl, for instance, who was wearing the hijab and sees maybe there is a barrier or friction between playing sports or not. So I do think, for example, that like the likes of Ibtihaj Muhammad, Imrimla Akhtar, who is uh, one of the, the first female uh, Muslim female to be on the FA Ethics Committee. Um, so these, these women are trailblazers in, in the work that they are doing and also role models. Um, but they're also quite critical as well uh, in the nature of um, the question of empowerment and what does that look like, right? Um, and also who is speaking for Muslim women. Um, again, I don't think anyone else uh, should be speaking for them. Rather, they are more than capable <laughs> to speak for themselves. And particularly when it comes to sport, they are um, you know, setting, setting the record straight. And um, so I think ultimately the question is then flipped back at governing bodies about the reason why, for instance, uh, the hijab has you know, been banned in a particular sport. Um, and actually is turning the question back at, well, if we are serious about empowerment, if we are serious about providing a safe space for these women to participate, then they should be, you know, supported for their motive as opposed to sort of hijacking it almost and turning, uh, having a PR spin to it. So, yeah, and also this also, you know, comes back to politics. You know, some countries, for instance, um, uh, do not have, I mean, even in the UK, for instance, we have, I think that Manchester United, one of the biggest clubs in the world, does not have a women's team. So, and I think that is slowly changing. Um, so, the, again, the idea of, you know, culture plays into this and politics and um, the perception of um, whether uh, a woman can play sports in particular countries. So there is quite multifaceted in that approach, like how many, you know, there's, there's quite multi-tiered in the different questions um, we're looking at. But ultimately, if we were to look at the role of major corporations and women who wear the hijab, it, it almost feels like I have the seal of approval now that this brand has given me the, um, uh, the acknowledgement that I deserve. And... My point is, our our goal is not that. Our goal is far beyond that. Our goal is to compete and win medals, right? And be acknowledged for that, as opposed to be acknowledged as a player. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, there's uh, definitely a lot to talk about around that topic. How football, and especially involvement in football beyond border, helped you to build a new um, meaning around multiculturalism in, in, in Britain? Can... I mean, for, for us, football beyond borders... Um, I remember joining um, a couple of years after it started uh, with um, uh, tours being organized to different international uh, countries. And um, the idea was to use football as a medium to connect with different cultures and different peoples from different countries. Um, and because football is a global language, it was, able, it was actually a good medium for us to use. And um, we were quite fascinated as a group, you know, with the politics of the Middle East and Africa. And actually, the first couple of tours were organized in Turkey and Syria and then later on in um, Ghana. And then afterwards, the Middle East tour, which I traveled on, which was to Egypt, Palestine and Jordan. And that was very, uh, you know, it was during 2011, the summer of 2011. So the Arab Spring, the, the Egyptian Revolution, you know, just before the January 25th uh, Egyptian Revolution in Tahrir Square, um, 
what I all kicked off. And so we were we were part and parcel. We were during, you know, a very interesting period within the Middle East. And as, as always, the Middle East has always gone through drastic changes. So um, for us, using football as a medium to connect with different sp sporting clubs, even within the same country, for instance, we would play with two different clubs, one which is a bit more local and another which is uh, more from a prestige university. And we felt, you know, the difference between the two in um, the lifestyles, uh, the different class structures as well, just purely from a football match and being able to engage with some of the players. And again, you know, some of these players didn't speak English. Um, only a handful of us spoke uh, Arabic as a second language, but most of us were, you know, people uh, who were just London born and bred, um, have never m been to another country. Um, so it was a fantastic opportunity for us to engage and use football as that medium. But... Um, in terms of like um, sport is almost uh, the parameter for being able to understand other peoples and particularly from a context of, let's say, development and um, not f so from more local grassroots level. And um, <clears throat> excuse me. And I say that because what it, what, it, what it enabled us with was to understand the other three very for a shared passion which was sport and for us it was football and it was also an ability for us to convey a message much easier by connecting with people again through the shared medium so for us the, the question of Palestine was very important so the trip to Egypt Palestine and Jordan and on the back of that we you know we filmed a documentary uh, over the wall and that became something which was uh, almost, a, uh, again, you know, uh, one of the key highlights of the tour was that we were able to convey the message and the stories we had on that trip and on that tour with football fans around the world and with people who were interested in the, the politics of the Middle East and to understand it through the prism of sport. And um, the fact that, you know, when I, the first, one of the first instances I realized which were really uh, interesting is that in Palestine, for instance, in the West Bank, there were so many young kids who were playing football, had football shirts, and despite being under occupation, and um, had a had a real real zest for, for life and for wanting to play football, you know, and that was their escape. And for us, our escape to the Middle East was football as well. So it was an interesting way where we married the two together and we were able to have some fruitful conversations and discussions around very tough um, uh, topics. And I think you look at, you know, many anthropologists and academics are actually using sport as a medium to bring out, let's say, for instance, mental health uh, conversations amongst men who are not you know probably less inclined to talk about these things but within the scenario or setting of um, sport and teammates etc within the dressing room and changing room they are more inclined to actually share these stories together so and we see you know sports in conflict zones how does that you know work and we see for example in the case of South Sudan you know, days after the um, the the announcement of their of its independence, there was a football match that was organised because again, it brought the nation together. Um, and this is probably now stepping into the uh, the realm of public diplomacy and sport and the role governments and nations play within sports. And that's you know looking more now sort of national level to international geopolitics. Um, uh, and the role of sports but from a local level even here in the UK for example FBB now is a registered charity and um, it has created a football curriculum focusing on students who um, have a passion for sport and particularly football but um, need maybe that extra bit of help to excel in their 
uh, academic uh, um, uh, um, career or, or, or classwork or homework, etc. And we've seen some amazing results where a lot of the students are more receptive to the staff and, the, and uh, behind FBB because they have that relatability and they have that connection with sport. So, and also it's a, it's a medium again to you know to work on transferable skills which you can take throughout you know your your working life. So, for example, teamwork, communication skills, social media. Now, you know, there's just many different accounts uh, that you know young kids in particular are, are engaged with and follow. So that's a good medium as well to connect with. So I think in terms of like the key c- question of multiculturalism. Again, you know, I, 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 w- I would not say that sports is the remedy for racism because, again, sports, what you do find is a lot of racism spiked as well within these arenas. Um, hooliganism as well, uh, ultra fans, um, a lot of politics is involved in sports, um, political symbols, slogans, um, boycotting matches, for instance. So it's it's a space, ultimately. But it's a space where... Because of the nature of the of, of the sporting industry now, you have major broadcasters um, and media corporations so much focused on sport because of the fact that it's it's revenue it can it can bring in. So we've seen BT Sports, you know, outbid Sky. This is unheard of, but it outbid Sky for around over five billion pounds to gain the rights for the Champions League, um, and so. One asked the question, five billion pounds to show or to air live matches from the Champions League. And there is a market there. There is a market for, for this. And the NBA, likewise, the Super Bowl, the Olympics, the World Cup, all of these sporting spectacles are ultimately generating uh, revenue through commercial sales, through media broadcasters. And ultimately, you as a player are under the microscope. And your this match or this spectacle is beamed out to millions of viewers across the world. So that's why I would say it's not it's not the penicillin to society's problems and issues. Rather, it's parts and parts of society and not parts because it's, it's it has its own bubble. But it's also under the microscope, and therefore any action you do or any word you utter or any um, goal you score or any own goal you score is only further highlighted and. Um, um, across the world. So for that, I think it is, it is a tool, like many forms of diplomacy, it is a tool. And I think with any tool, you can use it for your benefit, for the benefit of the community, or it could be used for your own detriment and the detriment of the community. That was my, my last question. Um, it was a very interesting discussion. Is there anything you would like to add? Well, probably just to say that, you know, again, um, that our fascination with sport and, and public diplomacy, I think we look at, for example, the recent case of the Winter Olympics in, in Korea. So obviously the, the relationship between the US administration and the North Korean administration is quite interesting that, again, it just this feeds back into the, the, the point that I made earlier with regards to sport as a space and having different nations come together. Um, so it's almost like the... Uh, a, a summit where you have various nations come together and also and, and the Olympics is that it's almost a summit of of different nations within a sporting spectacle that's that's pretty much all, all it is really um, and um, 
it is a medium again of maybe softening relationships or even hardening relationships between different nations. Um, and we see this through the role of, of Nazi Germany and Hitler when they hosted the Olympics in the 1930s. So that was, you know, outrightly used as a form of propaganda, which backfired. Um, and different nations will seek to host a, a major sporting event in an effort and uh, uh, um, and, and the, the intention behind doing that to soften their perception amongst different nation states and obviously to widen their uh, appeal and, and uh, to different nations against through uh, um, the tool of tourism. Um, so th there is all that aspect as well that there are many ways of looking at it in um, and it almost goes back to our initial point about mega corporations being involved in the the hijab, etc. What is their motives, right? And what are the motives of, of the Muslim women who are wearing the hijab? Um, they're they're quite different. But where they do meet is it's sport, and it is almost like, well, do I take the opportunity where I know there will be a platform here, and there will be many many millions of people following and watching this, and it's just down to me to control that narrative. Um, and we see this with Colin Kaepernick as well in, in the NFL, um, where he fought very, very strongly with this black civil rights movement. And um, and again, used that medium where many, many people follow the NFL in the States and now across the globe because of his action. And he's been able to sort of further echo his message towards many, many uh, millions who who even probably didn't follow the NFL previously, so it's a space where it can, um, you know, as a tool ha being used in in a sort of uh, the 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 I don't want to say the right or wrong manner. There isn't a, a, as you know as such a, a right or wrong way, but in a manner where it can further um, influence your message at a much more heightened level and i think you know albeit like you know the the role of communication now it's it's sport is also a space for a uh, struggle and also a space space for liberation a space space for resistance um so all of these topics we've you know we we could look at this and talk about this for for ages yeah. and the the, the 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 role of sport and and space and you know people who politically have differences but yet use the, 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 the space of sport as a medium to further amplify their, their grievances. And um, that is quite interesting. And obviously a lot of the governing bodies will say that, look, no political symbols or no political slogans are allowed in sporting arenas. But ultimately, it's, it's a gathering of all fans coming together. Yeah. And I guess why I say it's a space. And I guess and that's why it is a tool. And I wouldn't say it's the end goal, but I think it's the means to the end of the goal. And I think um, with that, I end with a pun intended. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Omar, for joining us today. Um, thank you.